This is Paul Nobles from Eat Perform, and we're doing a live Q&A with our intermittent fasting group. And this will be published as a podcast afterwards. Uh, mostly the topic is going to be surrounded uh, related to intermittent fasting and working out doing intermittent fasting. And so there will be other questions I'm sure people are going to ask. Uh, for those that don't know, there's there's a number of types of of intermittent fasting, right? So when we talk about intermittent fasting, it it, it serves a really broad range. Um, I would consider intermittent fasting in the the 16 to 8 range. That's that's very popular right now. Um, I don't really consider 16 8 fasting. Um, but that that's really more of a, uh, you know, just a personal thought process. I know a lot of people do. The reason why I think that is because when you look at fasting in general, we're talking about managing caloric intake. Right. And so one of the things that I talk about a lot in our group is that the clock is not the magic. Right. It's the calories that are the magic. And so. What I see a lot is that many people that do intermittent fasting and intuitively eat overeat as a result in their fasting window. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that because that's going to be covered into the workout piece. Um, but I wanted to kind of walk through that. So then you have basically 24 hour fasting, which is kind of what we're advocates for. If you're not any to performer, you probably don't know that the calories undulate, right? And so when the calories undulate, we have two different low days. And so there are days where we want to push more energy towards your workouts. And then there's, you know, kind of suck it up days. And the suck it up days are, are low days. And the low days mean low carb, right? It's lower carb than you would normally eat because carbohydrates are going to be good for high-intensity workouts, running, lifting weights, all the things that require a little bit more energy so that you can build muscle and hold muscle along the way, right? So I'm going to show you how to match that up with fasting of various different types. So the other types of fasting or intermittent fasting, so one thing that's really popular right now is one meal a day. I'm not an advocate for one meal a day. I've done one meal a day. Um, and I've also done the warrior diet, which is a diet that uh, is, uh, I can't remember Ori's last name, but but uh, you can Google it. It's, it's a very, it used to be very popular. What it is, it's basically intermittent fasting where you might have like a protein drink in the morning or something like that to uh, kind of hold on to muscle. So, and in Ori's defense, uh, I probably wasn't as knowledgeable as I am now as it relates to fasting. Um, and the big issue that, that I would have had, and I still kind of do have this issue. I, I really don't think that you can get an appropriate amount of nutrients in a small window. But, but more importantly, is science has shown us that metabolism decreases 
based on under eating all the time, right? And so the basic idea of eat perform is fairly simple, that you're going to want to um, make sure that you're eating an appropriate amount of food the majority of the time and you want to diet very sparingly. One of the things that people like about one meal a day is, you know, it's very simple, right? Now, can you overeat in one meal a day? Yes, you can. Um, it's very easy to, you know, um, have 3,000, 4,000 calories in one sitting. Uh, I'm not a fan of that from a digestion standpoint. I think gut health um, would be compromised a little bit. You know, this is where a lot of people that are advocates for these types of positions will say, but if you take a probiotic, if you take this, if you, you know, supplement with all these different things that you can kind of make up for the difference. Let me tell you what happened in my case. In my case, I lost eight pounds of muscle. So I was body fat testing once a month. I would go to the University of Minnesota and so I was testing all these various diet concepts, right? And uh, I was also uh, making sure that I had an appropriate amount of calories um, at certain times. And so I knew for a fact that, you know, when something was working or wasn't working. Now, when you talk about losing two pounds of muscle, you might be talking about hydration. You know, one of the things I found body fat testing that was really interesting to me, and I think probably interesting to most people that try to do it, is that the uh, the way that you are hydrated related to food mattered a great deal. So if, you know, you were, let's say, 11 percent body fat. And uh, so a great example would be uh, I body fat tested. And I tested at 11 percent. And it just didn't jive with what I thought was reality at that time. And so I retested three days later after having, you know, after having like a refeed meal. And sure enough, within the refeed meal under similar conditions with weight relatively similar, actually a little bit higher, I was 3% lower. So that was that was one of the things as it relates to enlightenment and and things that we talk about with eat perform that had me figure that out. But but one thing that is abundantly clear and you know OMAD people you know have this thought process related to what they're doing because they they prefer to eat you know a little bit more freely and that's fine, but the issue is, is that if you're going to eat all of your food in a two-hour window, you're going to uh, compromise your metabolism and you're going to blow through muscle. And and people are flippant about that because they feel like, well, I'll just gain more muscle later on. No, you won't, right? Because when are we dieting? Most of us are going to be dieting in our 40s and 50s and things of this nature, even in our 30s. When we're talking about 30s, 40s and 50s, it's very difficult to put on muscle of any amount, you know, when you're in this range, right? And so that's the thing you have to be careful with OMAD. Once again, 
you know, if you look at the way that we're structuring 24-hour cycles, it's very similar to OMAD. The, the question isn't whether or not OMAD is good. The question is whether you should do it all seven days. And it, from what I've seen, the data I've seen, the science I've seen, two days is much better than five days. The problem that you run into, right, is everyone's quick, fast, and in a hurry about the weight that they're going to lose. And so when we talk about weight loss in general, the way that I want you to think of it, if you're obese, you really want to stick to about two pounds uh, a week, right? And then as you get closer to your weight loss goal, the most you really want to be at is at one. And there's a lot of instances for really lean people where 0.5 is about the max that you want to do. So that is my opinion on OMAD. It's based on what I've seen. It's based on a lot of different things. And I think that the critics, the people that will answer that, will all say, you know, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I've lost 30 pounds. The issue isn't whether or not you've lost 30 pounds. The issue is, are you going to keep that 30 pounds off? And my answer to that question is almost certainly you will not because you will be more insulin sensitive when you start to eat more freely and you're going to be more prone to gain weight faster, right? And so when what we see in the diet community and health and fitness in general is that the quicker that things go, you know, um, in, in terms of weight loss, the, the, the more you're likely to rebound drastically, right? And so this is actually some of what we're going to be talking about today because when you're doing a 24-hour fast, you're going to be very insulin sensitive. Um, and I'm going to give some strategies on how to use that. And then, you know, even into the next day, you're going to feel this draw on your body, right? And, and in theory, that's you using fat as fuel. It's not the only thing that you're going to be using as fuel. This whole fat adapted idea is sort of overdone. If 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 you could become fat adapted and use fat as fuel, right? We would already know, right? It's been in the ether for for that long. And what we know for fact is that the majority of people aren't making it and many of the people that are on fat adapted type diets often end up skinny fat and the reason why they're skinny fat and I hate that term and I wish there was a better term to say it but everybody knows what I'm talking about um, is that you're more likely to blow through muscle right now can you drastically um, lose a lot of weight and then come back fine I would say that from a scientific standpoint yes you can right one of the things that we definitely see is that people can add back in calories in much larger amounts than they're comfortable with um, and be totally fine. But you really have to be on, under someone's care that knows what they're talking about. Like as an example, um, he's not fasting, but, but um, it really wouldn't make much of a difference because the, the mechanisms of fasting are very similar to a caloric deficit in the first place, right? Um, and so I have a client right now that's about 30, down 30 pounds. He, he 
has been able to lose a drastic amount of weight and he's kind of gotten to the the in the beginning we were more in that two pound range and now we're more in the one pound range as he's gotten drastically leaner right and even almost to the point of 0.5 and what we're seeing is that or what we will see and what the thing that I keep telling him this is this is someone that's a very good athlete um is that once food comes back we're not going to be doing it in this passive way we're going to be do it doing it in a way that will allow for better workouts muscles being full things of that nature and so um I'll end on that note but those are those are some of the things um Actually, let me let me let me throw out one other caveat. Anything over 24 hours, I would define as fasting. Now, other people might not define that as fasting, but I would not find that define that as intermittent fasting. And so that is just my personal opinion. Uh, I just don't feel like anything like that is necessary. Now, you know, the people that do it often find themselves so so let me give you a scenario and and if people are offended by this scenario i apologize but but i think it's i think it's good to give examples right is if you're an intuitive faster right and one of the things that that appeals to you is you were um you like to eat more freely right? And you were eating in a way where you really didn't give much thought to it. And so let, let me just give you an a, a example. It's a bad example, but I think it'll illustrate the point better. If you were eating three cheesesteaks a day, right? And you went down to two cheesesteaks a day, well, you would in theory lose weight, right? And so if we're using the cheesesteak metaphor, right? Metaphor, analogy, I always get that one mixed up. Um, but if we're using that, and now all of a sudden, you know, we go, okay, well, now instead of two cheesesteaks a day, I'm going to have one cheesesteak at the end of the day, or I'm going to fast three days and then have my three cheesesteaks, right? The math is the same on all of that, and the result, from a scientific standpoint, looks very similar. I think what ends up happening in, in, you know, there's a point with insulin sensitivity and also hunger signaling, right? Like, if you fasted for three days, you know, it's going to be difficult. Your stomach's going to shrink. It's going to be difficult to eat three cheesesteaks. It's not impossible, but it's going to be a little bit more difficult. I think what happens in the case of, of intuitive eaters is they they like to eat a little bit more freely. And what you see in communities with multi-day fasting, right, is they all started with a 16-8 window, then they moved to a 24-hour window, and now they're fasting for five days straight or as long as possible, right, because they don't want to count calories. And in my view, right, uh, they're they're playing with fire. Anything more than 24 hours, you should be under doctor's care. 
once again, my opinion, um, but that opinion is is based on what I've seen related to research and the people that I know that have an opinion on that kind of thing. And if you're not under a doctor's care and you're doing something to dramatically affect your health, right? Now, if I'm extremely obese, and as most people know, I was extremely obese, um, I would grasp at a lot of things. And what you often see, you know, when you're obese, it's not just fat that's the problem. It's a combination of fat and water and things of this nature. And so when you start off eating in a 16-8 window and you blow through some water um, and some fat, it's very motivating. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, okay, that's cool. You know, why don't I try a 24-hour window? So you find that that's fine. And then what ends up happening is all throughout that process, you you find homeostasis, basically the balance that your body wants to be at. And uh, if you're if you're watching live, my nose is so itchy right now. It's very dry here in Minnesota um, because we're starting to get snow. And so when you're trying to challenge homeostasis, right, that's the basis for all fat loss. One. You know, 16-8 is going to be comfortable. You're not going to typically deal with any type of, uh, you know, headaches, things of that nature. It's pretty easy to adjust to. At 24 hours, you start to run into those types of things. But at 16-8, you might plateau. At 24 hours, you might plateau. Not only you might, you will plateau, especially if all the conditions were equal, right? Because once you give your your body something, your body considers it. So for instance, when we talk about dieting, we're essentially talking about stress, hopefully manageable stress so that your body adapts and uses fat as fuel as part of that adaption, right? It's not the only thing it uses. It's always gonna, always gonna use some combination of fat and um, muscle, but if you do it right, you can hold on to muscle. That's why, you know, in all apologies to Ori, the I did not have the knowledge base that I that I have now. So I might have been able to, you know, handle things a little bit better. I I still feel, um, you know, the critic, the, the criticism I would have of that protocol would be that when you start to introduce food. And, and once again, I'm not saying that you can't do it. I'm not saying that you can't figure out a way to do it, you know, things of this nature. One thing that Ori actually did point out that I think is something that is a little overrated. If you're not familiar with our approach to fasting, we believe in a no rules approach to fasting. We don't believe that the clock is the magic. Right. Same thing with ketogenic dieting, same thing with plant based dieting. You know, it's not the the ketosis. That's the magic. It's not the vegetables. That's the magic. It's the calories. And in all of these instances, you can overeat. And in all of those instances, they may have value. Obviously, in terms of fasting, you're reducing the amount of time that you can you can eat. So naturally, you're going to run into um, fullness issues and things of this nature, and that could be favorable in, in regards to creating a deficit. Even in the case of fasting, what you will hear from me and from 
you know, my approach and, and my approach is, is, I mean, I, I hate to say it like this, but it's the, it's the right approach, right? Like it, it's well known that you can't just diet. And so when we talk about fasting, we talk about ketogenic dieting, we talk about plant-based dieting, whatever it is, you know, you really do have to reverse and bring your body to normal because that's what your body would prefer to do. And, and when I'm talking about this, you know, it's sort of like, a, you know, a, I think it's a bell curve where um, you're going to be able to diet more when you have more fat to lose, right? And when I say more fat to lose, I mean you are obese, right? You're 350 pounds as a man, you're 275 pounds as a woman. As you get closer to where your leanness is, your not dieting periods need to be much longer than your dieting periods, right? That is not up for debate. <laughs> this is scientific fact, right? Because We've all know what a plateau is and a plateau from a scientific standpoint is it's become difficult to challenge homeostasis. And and anybody that's trying to adjust to fasting right now or something of this nature, you know, what they're going to be finding is that they're going to get headaches. Maybe sleep gets interrupted, things of this nature. This is your body saying, I don't like this right now. Should I fight through it? It's possible, right? But if it becomes this thing where, you know, you started off at 2,400 calories as a man and now you're eating 1,900 calories and you're as low as 1,100 calories and, and you're really stalled and, and things of this nature, there's a point where less is actually, less food actually works against you, you know, because now just the condition of dieting and stress in general um, has become so much more that cortisol levels are going to rise so high, right? And so when we look at cortisol, we have to look at kind of this inverse relationship with insulin. This is one of the arguments that we make for a moderate amount of carbohydrate is that cortisol and insulin are antagonists. So when you bring, you know, uh, insulin into the mix and insulinogenic foods are protein and, and carbohydrates. Those are what I refer to as building hormones, right? So insulin is a building hormone. If you have an agenda, if you're a guru and you're trying to sell people on the idea that your protocol is magic, you say that insulin is a storage hormone because you're just trying to scare the shit out of people to do what your New York Times bestseller is saying that you can do. And we've all seen diet books hit the New York Times bestseller. You know, remember a couple of years ago, everyone was paleo. Now, not many people are paleo because we all figured out kind of the same thing that we all knew when we were five years old, that meats, meats and veggies are actually pretty good for you depending on kind of your ethical proposition related to plant-based dieting and stuff like that, which by the way, I'm a fan of both. My daughters are vegetarians. My wife aspires to be vegetarian um, just because, you know, she doesn't love the texture of meat. And so I am an agnostic as it relates to really any type of, of eating that you prefer, including low carbohydrate. We, we don't get enough 
credit for that part because in the low carb community, carbs are always evil. And uh, you see some really smart people on that side of the aisle, you know, keto gains folks. I, I've I've shouted those out in in the pack in the podcast in the past. They believe in strategic carbohydrates. They're cyclical carbohydrate cycling, um, reverse dieting, re- where you know food is coming back and you're more conscious of calories. Anybody that does it like that, they know what they're talking about. Anyone is selling you on. Um, insulin being a storage hormone is basically selling you fear and you should run as fast as possible away from those people. All right. So I promised we were going to stop for a second there and uh, we don't have any questions at this point. So this is becoming a very horrible Q&A. Um, I do have some questions that people have asked in the group. And so I'm going to go ahead and see if I can pull those up really quickly. And hopefully it doesn't make for a really bad podcast experience. So Kristen is saying, thank you. Just messed my coach about this too. My schedules, the workouts and every week is different in terms of which three days are strength and which three days will be cardio agility. This week, Monday through Friday, we're both strength days. I work out 6.30 a.m. Um, to 8.30 a.m., which is in the middle of the fast. Should I flip medium or low day macros or work out in a fastest state or try it out and see how my body responds? Well, first of all, you're not in a fasted state if you ate the night before. Right. So even in the case of a 24 hour cycle, you should have had enough macros to get you through a workout. Now, if you're a CrossFit Games athlete or an Olympian or something like that, stop fasting. Right. Um, unless you're out of season. Right. There's probably an argument that out of season you could use fasting. I know, you know, Rich Froning as an example is an advocate of like a 16-8 window, which once again, I don't consider it 16-8 window because, you know, he might just like to eat two bigger meals, right? A big meal at lunch and a big meal at dinner. It's a good way of managing calories, probably a lot of calories. You know, I've done 16-8 windows eating up to 5,000 calories. You know, now you go, well, how do you do that? Well, easy. You have a ribeye for lunch, right? And you have, you know, some really calorically dense foods along with some energy dense foods. The problem that you run into when calories are high is that um, you, if you eat too much nutrient dense foods and you don't spread it out over, let's say, three to five meals, it becomes really uncomfortable and digestion becomes an issue and things of this nature. And once again, if you're, if you understand that fasting is not the magic, then you can realize how you can adjust. So if you're just a regular workout person, one of the most overrated concepts, and actually we talk about this in Sundays with Susan, with Dr. Susan Kleiner, that and I can't remember if it's going to be this week or next week episode, but the concept of pre-workout and post-workout is somewhat overrated because 
when we're looking at nutrients, what you're really talking about is having 24 hours for your food to go where you need it to go to where you can use it. Now, if you're more insulin sensitive and after a 24 hour fast, you would be, then you um, would probably find that you wouldn't need the, tw the full 24 hours, that the nutrients probably got to where you wanted to go. Now, you might be a little bit hungry, but if you think of the way that we structure it with Eat to Perform, you would have the ability to have um, food the very next day. One of the things that I think people are confusing a little bit is that when you have a 24-hour fast twice a week, then you don't have to have 16, eight windows, the other five, right? You can literally eat before your workout in that way. And if you're hungry or you wake up ravenous, I would highly suggest you do that. What I do in those scenarios, so like in, in the case of Kristen, she's mentioning 6.30 to 8.30. Um, 6.30 might be a little difficult, but I still think you could kind of get away with it. Usually I have um, either bagel with cream cheese and honey, um, which isn't something that would make me throw up as an example, doing high intensity workouts. You know, normally at that time I might be doing something like CrossFit, but maybe you could do like one side of the bagel with cream cheese and honey, um, just to have a little something in your, your stomach. More often than not though, what I would do is four ounces of full fat Greek yogurt with granola and honey. And that gives me enough um, within my stomach so that I feel comfortable, satisfies the hunger cravings a little bit. And then after my workout, um, I will then, you know, have a decent sized meal. The thing that I need everybody to realize related to pre-workout and post-workout, why is there so much discussion about this? Well, the science is fairly clear that it barely matters, right? But there's a whole supplement industry related to this. Um, many of the people that, you know, work out often recommend this because many of them are, are getting sponsorships from supplement companies and things of this nature. And it is arguably slightly better, right? It's just not that much better to make that big of a difference and you can get away with it with food for the most part. Like I said, you know, I barely use any kind of supplement. I, I do have um, cookies and cream, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, my oatmeal. So I'll, I'll just, you know, this is actually probably my go to, I mean, probably the thing that I eat most um, post workout is just. Uh, scoop of peanut butter, uh, oatmeal, and, um, you know, my cookies and cream, uh, or a teaspoon of, uh, a tablespoon of, of peanut butter. Now, there will be people that will argue, well, you shouldn't have fat in that meal because it loads better. And while, yes, they are correct that it does load better, um, for me, I'm not eating that food for an immediate response. My body will be able to figure it out through the course of the day, right? And if I were Usain Bolt, 
I probably would try to maximize things, but I do kind of know how my body works and I know how my workouts work best. And um, I think in this instance, you know, could you work out fasted? Once again, I'm talking about a scenario where you're you're probably eating a meal um, that day before, even in the scenario where you're starting a 24 hour fast. Right. So if it's a low day, you're coming off of a medium day, even in fat loss, you would have in a, a decent amount of calories um, to make a difference. And so we do have one question. So I'm going to take a look and see. And it's actually Kristen. Um, and she's saying 630 or 830 workout start, not always a two hour workout. What I would suggest when we're talking about um, a whether or not the workout is long, I, I kind of get what she's saying. What, I, what I'm saying is, is that if you're hungry in the morning or if you start to work out 630 to 830, you could try it fasted. I don't think, you know, there's once again, the, you know, it's very difficult for me to have these discussions with you guys without immediately thinking about all the bullshit that everybody talks about. Right. So there's this whole, you know, movement related to fasted training that is mostly based on bullshit science, right? And so the, the fasted training thing is that you would then be able to, you know, burn more fat. And what the science shows is that clearly it levels out over time, right? So working out, if you find that you're working out and in the instance that, you know, let's say that it is a two hour workout, you would just adjust lower um, if you were fasted, but fasted is not going to be better. It's a personal preference. If you prefer it that way, then that's great. There have been instances, like for instance, when I was working out at 5.30 a.m., um, I don't personally feel like I was fasted in that scenario because I had carbohydrate from the evening before, right? So somebody saying to me, I prefer to work out fasted, but then they had three baked potatoes at dinner, you really weren't fasted, right? And so you have to sort of keep that in mind. And so when we talk about um, the, the more interesting question would be if she were working out at noon. Now, this is where I think the, cat, the, the, the clock is the magic part really comes into play. Because in that instance, you, you might be a little bit hungry. You're not going to be able to work out. And this is where kind of what we were talking about with Ori earlier, where I think he was on to something and I think is actually something that should be considered. The condition of fasting is basically no calories, right? So there's full groups of people that will debate this. It's mostly bullshit right? It, at the end of the day, it's, it's the caloric intake over time, whether you're doing 16, eight, whether you're doing 24 hours, you know, and then of course, when we're talking about a deficit, you know, or we're talking about plateaus, there's, there's only two ways to break, break a plateau. There's to go down or to go up. And if you have scared the shit out of somebody, right, just for your book, you know, without 
really giving a good argument for reverse dieting, you're, you're sort of missing the point, right? And when you look at diets in general, what you'll often see is they really play up the deficit and really never talk about, you know, moving calories back to normal. And then often they'll play service to, you know, a, a whole food diet, sometimes even in a ketogenic diet. Like, for instance, in the fasting community, often there is this movement towards ketogenic dieting. Um, ketogenic dieting and intermittent fasting actually do something very similar, right? So when you're doing them together, you're essentially trying to accelerate what both of them do kind of the same, right? And so if your goal is to not work out, not have energy, you know, things of this nature, in my view, you're sort of missing the point of what is going to need to happen once you stop dieting. Now, if you have this thought process that it's not a diet, it's, it's a lifestyle where you're going to run into a problem because you're creating a scenario where a lifestyle of under eating is what is going to become your new norm. And there is this thought process, even from very smart scientific people, that, you know, will not really give service to a reverse dieting standpoint. And, oh, by the way, there are some people on Instagram and Facebook that live this really restricted lifestyle and they are ripped. And they would say to you, well, you know, I eat, I eat mostly, you know, net carb vegetables and, 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 you know, meats with fat in them, but, but, but not too much fat and kind of lean and, and things of this nature. I think if people figured it out that way, um, we would see a strong movement, right? That, that has answered the question for all of society. But, but the fact is it really hasn't, right? People are more confused. And the reason why they're more confused is because it gets to a place where your body adjusts to it. And now they're scared, scared shitless to move back to normal. So that's something to keep in mind. So when we talk about doing a workout at noon, I would 100% eat in that scenario, even if I was on a 24-hour fast. And even though my macros might be a little bit lower for that day, and I would just fit them into my macros, right? So my, you know, meal once I break my fast. So when I say a 24-hour fast, you know, if you're listening to this and you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just simply talking about stop eating at 8 p.m. and then start eating at 8 p.m. And then you go, wow, that seems pretty gangster. Well, I can tell you personally, I almost never do 24 hours because I don't need to. Because the calories is the thing doing the magic. So if I get to a place and or like for instance if my kids need to eat at 6:30 I'm not going to make a separate meal for myself at 8 I'm just going to eat at 6:30 and I'm just going to eat the macros that I have for that day so if we were looking at whether or not you can eat right um and still be fasted no you're not technically fasted but technically it doesn't matter because it's the calories that that matter a great deal so a lot of people listening to that will go, 
I would be so ravenous after eating the food that I would basically just end up in a Burger King drive-thru. Here's my argument of why you end up in a Burger King drive-thru. It's not that fast day. It's the other five or six days that's causing you the problem. You're under eating on those days, right? And so what I'm, the proposal I'm making to you, right, is that if you can eat at a little bit of a surplus, right, on the other five days, you can hold on to muscle, right? If you're eating your, your macronutrients in appropriate amounts, see, this is the, the big lesson that things like Weight Watchers or Slim Fast or some of these things where, you know, it's all about just calories lower. What you often see is that, you know, there's this emphasis on walking and, and things that really, you know, I wouldn't consider exercise. It's not that they're bad, right? The, if you were asking me, the one tool I have in my toolbox that has made the biggest difference as it relates to um, fat loss over time, it's 100% walking, right? Um, on a 24-hour day fast, more often than not, I would not suggest that you work out. But I have worked out and I've been fine. I have eaten and been fine. But the problem that you run into if if you're in a fat loss cycle and your macros are relatively low and things of this nature, and then you're trying to do it, and then you're trying to do a two-hour workout, and then you're trying to ketogenic diet, right? You're essentially saying, okay, so diet is stress, workout is stress, my job is stress, not sleeping is stress, and then you go, why is my thyroid fucked up? Why is all these things negative happening to me? You're doing it to yourself, right? Because in theory, you have this goal that you think that you can reach if you just suffer harder, right? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, be uncomfortable at times because I think that, you know, when we're talking about fat loss, you're going to be uncomfortable. You, it might disrupt your sleep. It might disrupt your, your attitude. Uh, I would be careful. Uh, one, one of the things that I think we talk about a lot that I don't think enough people talk about is the effect that caloric restriction has on your mental health. If you start to have mental health issues, you should definitely consider moving towards a normal approach to calories that can keep you weight stable, right? Now, we all know that we have kind of this ebb and flow relationship with weight and the scale and things of that nature. If you move calories to normal because your mental health was being compromised, what you have to also realize is that you're not going to be losing weight in that instance. What I think people got, you know, when we first started to conform, what I think people heard was not what I was saying, right? What I think people heard was, oh, I can eat and lose weight. And 100% you can eat and work out and lose weight. But that's not really what I was saying. What I was saying is, is that as you got leaner, remember we were talking about when I was obese, right? I was in more frequent dieting cycles. As I got leaner, the dieting cycles became less and less and less 
to the point where, you know, just recently I just finished a fat loss cycle. But previous to that, you know, I was on a diet break for five years, right? And that's the only way to really build muscle, right? Everyone wants to talk about and give lip service to building muscle um, without, uh, without losing fat. And the reality is, is that I would, would and did put on fat in that instance. But if, if you were to ask me, what's the one thing that I can do to put on muscle, that's easy, way more, right? So if you weigh more and do some amount of resistance training, even, even resistance training that is body weight, you will gain muscle, right? That's just how resistance training works because once again, you know, people, you know, take a negative point of view related to stress. Every time you lift a weight, you're introducing stress to your body for a specific result. You know, you're trying to get it to a point where it can adjust to that stress. Then you give an appropriate amount of food and then it adapts. And now all of a sudden you're a tiny bit stronger. And if you've ever done any kind of periodization related to um, weightlifting, that's essentially what you're trying to do. So, if you're trying to do that underfed, good luck. It's not going to work, right? I mean, you might be able to hold on the muscle, but you're it. It's going to be so difficult. So when you look at how we do it, you really are looking at those five days where we're um, kind of have you at a little bit of a surplus, and then have the two drastic days down and that's where you're really focusing on the fat loss. So you're not playing an all in approach where you're losing as much weight as possible, as quick as possible, because what we know from a scientific standpoint is that's not the best way to do it. So, so far that's been the only question that we've had at um, up to now. Amanda did ask a question in the forum and she said, I felt great day after my fast and the day of my fast. I hit a wall today during my workout. I think it's a delayed re reaction from the fast. Still feel okay, but lacked energy during my workout and half-heartedly made it through. Interested to hear the podcast today for tips. So essentially what Amanda is describing is what I described earlier. So when you have a, let's say 20, 18 to 24 hour period where you know nutrients are coming into your body so they're hitting your muscles and and you're fine even the very next day right where you would be eating normal you will still feel this draw this is the value of under eating this is the value of you know adding in a um less food as a stress element to use stored bodily fat as fuel and so what she's basically saying is, is when I went to work out, my exercise, I did not, I was not able to get better at exercise because of that. Here would be my argument to that. If your goal is to get better at exercise, then that's a really bad idea. Like I said earlier in the podcast, if you're a CrossFitter, CrossFit Games athlete, if you're a, well, really, if you're a CrossFitter in general, if you CrossFit, if you Orange Theory, if you lift weights, 
what you are essentially trying to do is get better at those things. If you're using those things, including running, including walking and, and you know, really anything as solely a, you know, um, weight loss mechanism, you're sort of missing the point of how your body works. Right. And so there's always a case for strategic fat loss over time and weight management over time. Right. So when I talked about my five years where I would have gained weight and actually gained a little bit of fat to put on muscle, that's because I understand not only how my body works, but I also understand real well how to lose fat. Right. And so the if you're listening to this and you've been dieting since you were eight years old and you can't recall a five year period where you weren't dieting without just going off the rails and then becoming obese, then you don't know what I'm talking about. Right. You don't know how your body actually works. And so if you've done that, which is very rare, especially as it relates to women, women seem to be much more susceptible to intermittent fasting groups and and just eat real food and you know, all these messages of less right even fitness professionals i mean i've done seminars and talked to fitness professionals and they've asked me questions and in their question they're essentially walking in with this this thought process that every client that they have goes to McDonald's three times a day, right? And that's why they're needed. And I think most personal trainers and gym owners, one of the reasons why they want to stay away from kind of the nutrition side is they know it's not that cut and dry. It's very easy to say that your thing isn't working and your thing being, you know, CrossFit, personal training, running, whatever, um, if you just naturally assume that the person's an idiot outside of that time. Well, what I see is that people aren't idiots, right? I mean, if you're a 50-year-old woman and listening to this podcast, my guess is this is not your first rodeo, right? What you don't know, though, and what you don't hear is the message that I'm sending to you. And this is very clear. And I'm going to make this super, super abundant as we talk about fasting, as we talk about plant-based dieting, whatever it is, you know, you have to cycle in, you know, periods where your body goes back to normal. And, and then when you go, well, what's normal? Well, normal's a lot higher than you think it is, right? Because, you know, if you think, you know, you're at 1200 calories, you know, I, I asked a room of, of people at one point, what, their um, maintenance macros were at. Now these were these were CrossFitters, right? This is at a CrossFit gym, and the average that we came up with was 1350. And so when I put 2100 on the board, it really shocked people to the point where I'm absolutely certain that they left there with disbelief, right? The reality is is most of us don't know what our body's capable of. And we don't know how to gain muscle, how to preserve muscle, how to preserve our thyroid, how to make sure that we are not losing hair, how to, you know, once again, it, you have to start viewing dieting and eating less as stressful, 
right? And your body is attempting to adapt to that stress. And then what you have to do is normalize once your body has adapted to that and then have a strategy as it relates to the things that you want to get better. So in the case of, you know, someone that likes to run, but maybe doesn't want to, you know, uh, lift weights or maybe they're even scared to lift weights or maybe they're a little older and, you know, their form's not great and things of that nature. That's fine. Body weight movements, you know, some of the most ripped people you'll ever see in your life can't lift weights. They're in prison, right? And so if you look at, you know, prison workouts and things of that nature, you know, you're really talking about people. Like if you really want to get in shape and you really want to do you know, kind of get that physique that you see from a lot of people, like a lot of the fitness people that you follow, open a gym. Nothing will get you more ripped than open a gym, right? Because you're sitting there all day long. And so you might as well just bang out a hundred pull-ups, right? Or you might as well just, you know, do a set of squats for that day. And and when you see, you know, somebody like a Rich Froning who you know, kind of puts workouts on a board and, and, and adjusts, which seems kind of unscientific, but it's actually very scientific because, you know, when you can do it like that, you're looking at systematic overload and that's how you get better at anything, right? And so when we're talking about Amanda's question, what she's seeing is, is that the draw that you get is not acute. This is, once again, kind of my shot at the fat adapted community because you're basically giving people a bunch of nonsense that is not fact. The fact is, is that you are going to feel the effects of food over time, right? And so if we're looking at, you know, I mean, the simple fact of the matter is, is that if let's say that you were low carb, you're really not going to be operating at maximal efficiency as it relates to glycogen in your muscle. Yes, through the process of gluconeogenesis, you can um, you know, get enough glycogen for your brain to survive and for your organs to survive, but it's not going to be enough for your, your muscles to, to, to operate at peak efficiency. Now, can you lift weights? I'm just going to tell you something that I know to be fact, um, and you can just kind of take it for what it's worth. Most people that you see that are low carb are using some form of testosterone replacement. I wouldn't say that they're you're necessarily on steroids or something of this nature, but more often than not, they do have something to prefer per, preserve their muscle that the average person is not privy to, right? And so when you're listening to a bodybuilder or you're listening to someone that's selling you on their low carbohydrate course and things of this nature, they're not going to always be super honest with you as it relates to the things that they take because it would jeopardize their job because they know that the majority of people might not be open to that, right? And so you have to sort of keep in mind there might be part of the story. I don't have any problem telling you that I don't take anything. Um, 
you know, when I'm at my leanest, people say, oh, yeah, well, there's steroids really work. Well, no. What works is a strategic approach to food, right, where you're not super lean at all times. And if you see someone that's super lean all time, what you'll often see is they eat overly restricted or they have a little help. There's no that like, for instance, I, what I want people to hear when I say that is that I don't have a skin in that game. Right. Um, if you uh, I'm actually very intrigued as it relates to hormone replacement for men and women as it relates to longevity of life. So if if it's seeming like I'm disparaging people for taking that, I'm not. I think that under care um, you can do that well and it potentially could save most of our lives. There's you know, a lot of great work in the AIDS community, AIDS, HIV, with performance enhancing drugs that many people would consider to be out of the realm of what they do. Well, guess when you would be more into it, when you could potentially die, right? And so you're seeing the cocktails that people talk about, many of those are muscle preserving and things of that nature. So when we talk about, you know, age and longevity of life, that's sort of what I'm talking about. But what Amanda's question was is that it is normal to feel a draw and you're not going to always work out. I would argue that the majority of people that work out every single day, and I talk about this with Susan and, and you'll, you'll see this as a consistent theme on our Sundays with Susan, that most people are working out at 50, 60 percent and that's just their norm, right? What Amanda's saying is, is that I normally feel great when I work out, which may be close to 100% or maybe 70% if she's in fat loss. But now all of a sudden she's introduced fasting, which is a way to an accelerate a deficit. And now, you know, she's challenging homeostasis and it feels a little bit uncomfortable. Well, then what we do at Eat Reform is we have kind of the two to three days where things normalize again, and then we go again. And then what happens after that is once Amanda's reached her goal, or at least her goal for that cycle, then we move on. So I'm going to end the podcast on this one because it's already got kind of long. And I apologize for being a little bit tardy. <laughs> I was saying to my wife, I was like, oh, I'm so happy. I literally have nothing going on today. And then, of course, I had something monstrously going on. Um, but the uh, the thing I wanted to talk about that is not common in the diet community, uh, I think, will help people understand both the goals with fasting, the goals with really a lot of the groups that we're going to be um, introducing, including Good Mood Diet, including new power eating, um, plant-based dieting, and then potentially more to come, is that you have to have a strategic approach that normalizes and then uses the period where you normalize. And even, even when you're normalizing, you may push it past the point of normalizing, um, which once again, I described earlier as the only way to really build muscle. Right. And so you have to keep that in mind. So if every single time your weight fluctuates, you freak out and you jump into fat loss, 
Well, you're never going to get as lean as you want to be doing that because you're never going to hold on to muscle. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, defined arms, defined abs, that's all muscle, right? So I just want to quickly talk about um, a client that is basically one pound away from her goal right now. And I want to talk about how we did things for her fat loss cycle, right? So overall, the goal was 20 pounds. And we kind of put in place what is roughly the eat to perform formula, which is about a three-month cycle where you have six weeks, two to three weeks, and then six weeks. In that time, the first, you know, three to four pounds came off very easy, right? And we had various points where she would plateau. Now, people often use the water weight thought process as if it's kind of a negative. Well, I've already introduced you to the idea that your body's going to be more comfortable hydrated. Your body's going to be more comfortable with full muscles and, you know, more water in your body. So the stress that we implemented with the deficit initially, which actually wasn't as low as we, we got, and I'll explain that process, um, it still caused enough to, to deal with that water weight. Water weight is the most underrated asset as it relates to any deficit cycle. When you release the water weight, when you start to get to that point where you're, it, it starts to get hard and it's not really super motivating, that's when you're actually doing the most work. You know, it's sort of like the, you know, when they asked Muhammad Ali, you know, how many sit-ups he does each day. And he's like, I don't know. I only count when they start hurting. A lot of people view water weight as I don't count it, that part, because it doesn't really matter. It matters a lot, right? Because what Muhammad Ali was essentially saying is, I don't know how many reps it takes for me to get to the hurting part. It might have been actually helpful for him to know how many reps it took to get to the hurting part. But it's that point where you're trying to adapt to that stress to use store bodily fat as fuel um, that, that really makes a difference. So in that stage, we were able to lose another, I'd say two to three pounds, as I recall. And then we lowered her macros for that fat loss cycle before we moved to what we call the AP phase, which is adaptation prevention. And essentially what that does is that allows you to move back to normal for a bit, kind of gain a little willpower back, but also kind of reset the metabolism so that it's ready for another short dieting cycle or in, in this case, you know, for someone trying to lose 20 pounds, you know, kind of the longer full six week process. Now, as we got closer to the end, I had to really explain to her that the two pounds she was seeing earlier is gone. We're not going to be able to do that. And that got really frustrating because now, you know, we were really looking at one pound a week and there was still kind of this, this thought process of, but what if I get two? Well, if you get two, you're more susceptible at that point 
to be pulling on muscle, especially when you're in a deep caloric deficit. So we went to when we went to fat loss too. Um, I think we lost two to three pounds relatively quickly, and within two to three weeks, it was obvious we were just going to be stuck there, or at least we had some good evidence that it might be the case. And that's when we brought in the 24-hour fast. And now, like clockwork, you know, it's much more manageable. And like I said, we're one pound away. Well, here's the problem. And this relates to Amanda's question, and I'm sure it relates to a lot of people's question. What if it gets too hard? What if it gets to a point where, you know, I can't sleep? Or in, in her case, she had kind of a, a, a fasting migraine, very common. If you Google it, you'll see a lot of references to a fasting migraines, especially as it relates to religious fast and things of this nature. And one of the reasons why uh, people have that is because they're not adapted to it over time, right? Um, they, they're not used to 24-hour fast. So if you do it once a year, it's going to cause a headache, right? Um, there's lots of things that cause that. Obviously, there's caffeine headaches, things of that nature. And the reason why is because the body's gotten used to that thing. And when you take away that thing, um, and in this instance, uh, we're talking about food, you know, it's it's a difficult adjustment. And so what a lot of people who aren't coached directly by me um, don't know, and I think we've done a real good job of of you know, kind of setting parameters for fat loss cycles um, and coaches do a great job of getting you ready for that. You know, when we moved to fasting and things got more difficult, right, because we weren't seeing a result with the deficit that we needed at that point, her thought process was, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I think I want to move back to the lower calories. And then I had to explain to her that at the lower calories, things weren't moving. Doesn't mean that they couldn't potentially move, but we had a time frame and that time frame was going to end, right? What science clearly shows you is that after three months, you get to diminishing returns. And so, you know, everyone's a little bit individual. Certainly if you're, you know, have more fat to use and you're morbidly obese, you can get away with things that super lean people cannot get away with, right? So you have to factor all those things in. But what I said to her as she was trying to walk through this, if you've ever had, you know, a very debilitating headache or a migraine or something of this nature. It's not something that you want to go through again, right? But when you bring the food back and the headache goes away, um, it's pretty obvious what was causing the headache, right? And so uh, I had to kind of give her kind of the thought process of, you know, you're going to maybe have this scenario. This also happens with sleep. I, I get that a lot because I'm a light sleeper in general. So when my calories are lowering, sometimes it affects my sleep. To assume that it's going to affect your sleep the whole time 
would be incorrect, but making sure that you have habits in place and, and things of this nature. So now we get to the end, we're one pound away, and we all have those numbers, right? I wanna lose 10 pounds, I wanna lose 20 pounds, or I wanna be under X, you know, deca, you know, number. So now, as she got close and the headache started to go away, she wanted to continue on. Well, as her coach, I said, we're not continuing on, and I'm willing to lose your business um, if you decide that you want to continue on, because I know what works and I know what doesn't work. And what I also know is that we can actually reach that goal. So like as an example, I'll just use you know this as an example. If she's 151 and we're stopping at 151 and not allowing her to go 149.9, it's really kind of a bullshit thing in general, right, to, to want that as a goal. Now, I also want that as a goal, but I know that she can actually get to that goal um, as calories are normalizing, right? But she doesn't know that because she hasn't seen that. She hasn't seen that in thousands of clients, right? So if she still wants to get to that goal where she's at 151, and once again, this is not the example. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're 151 and Paul told you, you know, we're stopping, it's not you, trust me. Um, the... Um, but you can get to, to 149.9 and you can have that. But the problem that you run into is that weight fluctuates in general. So it just ends up being kind of this, you know, exercise and nonsense, right? So for her, you know, or the example that we're talking about, um, what we would do is kind of set a ceiling at 155, right? Um, and so when things normalize. Now, it doesn't mean that she can't become, you know, I've seen many people go from 151 to 147 as calories come back, their workouts get better. Instead of just walking all the time, they're now able to go to CrossFit four to five times a week, whereas they were down to two to three times a week. Um, now, we'll say this, um, you'll often be your leanest coming out of a deficit at a slightly higher weight. So what I mean is, is that as your muscles fill up, uh, as you're able to deal with more volume in the gym, as you're getting kind of these nice muscle pumps and stuff like this, you will be at your leanest. You will look your leanest. What I think happens mentally is that people often get good feelings from that dried out look where you're kind of dehydrated um, and you're at your lowest weight. And so mentally, you're really happy about the scale saying what you've always wanted and you always dreamed and you haven't been that weight since you were 18, but you're not realistic about when you're actually looking your leanest or when you would measure your leanest. When you look at bodybuilders, they will often walk into a show dry as can be um and then once they 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 get judged the very next day is kind of the fun day 
because they've all eaten and rehydrated and their muscles are full. And when you look at the images from the day that they were judged compared to the day that they were showed, it's like shocking how much more lean they are, right? And how much more vascular they are and things of this nature. And so just remember that your mind will play tricks on you as you are your leanest. Um, didn't get a lot of, lot of questions um, and answers um, or a lot of Q&A, but uh, we had a couple great questions. I think that I, I kind of laid the groundwork that, you know, when you're working out, you want to be fed um, and you want to make sure that as you're structuring your workouts, remember why you're working out, right? Because let's be real. The majority of us are working out for a better physique. So even in a fat loss cycle, you're going to want to be more fueled and not less fueled, right? And so even though you might not be operating at peak efficiency, you will still want to make sure that you're not discrediting those workouts or just go for a walk instead. You know, I think you'll find that's as effective or more effective. Now, would I argue against Always walking, yes, because I think what ha would happen in that scenario is without some resistance training, you sort of see this a lot with runners, um, not picking on runners by any stretch of the imagination. Some of the toughest people you'll ever meet are runners because if I always say this to runners, runners are so gangster because the majority of the time they could quit. They're not running up a hill where the only choice is to go downhill. They could stop at any point and they continue on. That is the most amazing thing as it relates to resiliency and handling stress, right? And so one of the reasons why you see, you know, long endurance people actually able to survive dieting cycles better than, than regular folks is because they can mentally go to places that regular folks can't. And so... Just keep in mind that some level of resistance training, even if it's body weight, is very advantageous in that regard. All right. So I hope this was helpful. I think we we hit a lot of great topics. Um, and, and in general, I'm really excited about this opportunity. We'll be doing a lot more. You're going to see a lot of things coming. And uh, some of those things, I can't tell you the 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 specifics yet but once you find out the specifics i think what you're going to see is the future of eat to perform and like i said um we're introducing you know good mood dieting and um you know new power eating from susan kleiner as groups that are coming and that's going to introduce a part of eat to perform that's really been um my goal and mission since day one and i'm happy to have susan on in that regard so i appreciate everybody being here i know it's not easy to make time on a saturday but we'll talk to you later bye now